our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We're going to continue in our series through the Ten Commandments. We've been calling Thou Shalt the Ten Commandments. And so there was a typo in your bulletin because we are in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14 today. And I'm calling this one, Be Faithful. So this is the seventh installment in God's top ten list of the things that he would have us do. So let's just jump right into the text. It's a short, short verse, but here it is. Exodus 20, verse 14. It says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, when we usually think of the Ten Commandments, we usually, we usually don't think of them in the positive context, but I think that's what I really want you to do. I want you to think of these ten as positives. We usually think of these as negative, okay? Isn't that what unbelievers do? So often, unbelievers, they kind of boil down Christianity to just a list of things that they say that God says that you can't do. And sadly, I would say that's a lot of times, that's how Christians kind of understand the Ten Commandments, okay? But they're not negative. These are incredibly positive commandments, Let's review. Let me bring you up to speed where we're at here this week. The, uh, number one, God said that there are no other gods. And unfortunately for us, the one true God, he reveals himself to us. Number two says don't worship anything other than God. And I think that's incredibly positive that, that we have a creator God that wants to know us and wants us to know him and he, he died for us. What could be better than worshiping that God? Number three only speak positively about God. Number four, God said, take a break once a week and worship me. Now think of that, about that in the context which it's given to us. The, the, the God's people, the Israel, had been slaves for over four centuries. Slaves don't get a day off, do they? And so then God comes, he frees his people, and he says, take a break. I mean, you, know, you know why he had to tell us that? Because we don't naturally do that. We naturally don't take a break, and God loves us, and he only wants what's good for us, so he tells us to take a break. Number five is to honor your mom and dad. Number six is to celebrate life and to not celebrate death. Now that brings us to the seventh commandment. And I want you to think of the seventh commandment as be faithful to your spouse. If you think that's a negative thing, then please see me after church, because we can set up some counseling for you, and let's talk some more about this, because that is incredibly positive. You see, when this one is not followed, it can be very destructive. This one has the ability not only to destroy a family, but yet generations that are to come from that family that knows this sin firsthand. Read in Psalms 128 verse 3. It says, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. The psalmist is, is rightly comparing a, a grapevine to a, to a wife. He's saying that a marriage is a blessing. Well, you see, this blessing is only a blessing if it's treated and maintained and managed like a blessing that it is. Many years ago, I, I was preaching on uh, John chapter 15, and, and just back in California, and I went to our local hardware store, and they happened to be selling grapevines. So I bought one and brought it to the church, and I used it as an illustration as I was preaching through John chapter 15, and I thought it was a pretty good message, <laughs> and then... When the sermon's over, what do I do with the grapevine? I don't want to just throw it away because I'm cheap. So I, I took it home, and I planted it in our backyard, and, and I tried to start growing grapes. I had no idea how much work is involved in growing a grapevine. 
I mean, that it has to have a lot of sunlight, a lot of water, and that was pretty much the easy part. But the bugs, oh man, the bugs are coming in. They're trying to eat that fruit that I'm working so hard to, to, to grow. And then it has to be pruned constantly, like every week you're going out and pruning this grapevine because I want, I want something to grow from it. And the same is true from our marriages. Okay, great marriages don't just happen. Okay? They don't happen naturally. In fact, the opposite is true. That if we don't maintain and cultivate and care for, then marriages by nature will dissolve and decay and will die. You see, we have to make sure that those things that are coming in that want to destroy our marriage doesn't, doesn't come in and do that. That's exactly what's going to happen. So a lot of this message today is going to be speaking about those things that wants to kill a marriage. You know, some people think that being a pastor is just good times all the time. I don't know how many times I've been asked, hey, pastor, what do you do Monday through Friday? I work. That's what I do. Uh, <laughs> a lot of my job is to point people in the right direction that are going the wrong direction. But sadly, a lot of time they don't listen to me because I'm only a pastor. I can't make anybody do anything. And unfortunately, a lot of times people just don't listen to godly advice. But I want to say there is times when people listen. I can think of a couple that, uh, that met in my ministry. There was a number of small groups I, was, I used to be over, and there was this couple that they met in that small group, and then they dated in a godly way, and, and then they, they got married, and then now, right now they have, a, have a, a child, and that family is going in the right direction. It's a real success story. You see, as a pastor, a lot of times you have to focus on those that are kind of doing it right, because if you don't, you're not going to last long. This issue of adultery, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible when this, this commandment is ignored. We open our Bibles and right away we read that, that, that God created everything out of nothing. He made the heavens and earth, the moon, the stars, the ocean and everything. And then he made man and he made woman. And right away we read about the very first marriage in our Bibles. It's Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then comes Genesis chapter 3. That's where we first read about Satan. I love listening to Pastor Tony Evans. He always calls him old slick. I love the way he says it. You know, old slick shows up onto the scene. He just tries to ruin what God created. You see, Satan doesn't show up until after the first marriage. This is what I think. I think God's design is marriage. I think Satan's design is destroy God's design. So marriage is something that God has defined. He invented it. He gets to define it. Mankind, we did not create marriage, and so we don't get to define it, and we don't get to name it. So when something's called marriage, other than what God has called marriage, then it's not a marriage. It's something together, altogether different than marriage. Because today we live in a society that likes to add words onto other words to describe what we're talking about right now, but anything that's added to marriage, it's not marriage. Marriage is defined by God as one man committed to one woman in the covenant of marriage so long as they both shall live. That's what God calls it. And when somebody comes in and they add something like same-sex or polygamous to the word marriage, it's not a marriage. It's something different than marriage. You see, words have meaning. And, and, and words matter. And so the definition of marriage is not defined by you or I, but is defined by God. 
But here's something that's been debated for a long time. Is marriage a civil contract or is it a biblical covenant? Because a, a civil contract, that's just two people. This is more like a business arrangement. It's a, it's a legal arrangement. It's more like two business parties that are they're merging together. That's what a civil contract is. But a Christian's understanding, the biblical understanding, is that it's not just civil, but it's covenantal. That means it's not just two people. Because it's two people that are in covenant with each other, and then God oversees the covenant of marriage. This is why I'm very picky if I will perform a wedding ceremony. I will never marry a believer and an unbeliever. Because they, they can't covenant with God. They first have to be in covenant God before they can, they can be a biblical marriage. Now, two unbelievers, they can, they can get married. I'm not going to do the, the wedding. Somebody else can do that, but whatever. But I can't marry a believer and an unbeliever. Okay? And that's also why I require couples to go through premarital counseling. So they know exactly what they're about to get into. I can think of three occasions that I've done premarital counseling that after they finished the, the, the weeks of premarital counseling, they kind of looked at each other and said, I don't think we should marry each other. I think that's a success story when, when, they, when they do that. And two of those three, I'm thinking of them right now, they went on to marry somebody else. And they have great marriages. You see, as Christians, we believe the Bible. And the Bible says that marriage, it's really a picture of something so much greater that is to come. The Bible tells us that, that marriage between a husband and a wife, it is, it is a picture of Jesus' love for the church. That's exactly why the Apostle Paul said what he said in Ephesians chapter 5, where he said that Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her, that he would present her uh, to himself a radiant bride without blemish or spot. Then fast forward to the last book of our Bible, specifically the book of Revelation, chapter 19. And in it, the Apostle John is, is talking about something that we call the Lord's Supper of the Lamb, Marriage Supper of the Lamb. It's a wedding reception. You ever wondered what that, that meal is going to look like? It's going to look like a, a wedding reception. It's going to be awesome. I mean, how many of you love going to amazing weddings? Not a bad wedding, a great wedding. Anybody? Yeah, like three hands. Thank you. <laughs> If we love going to a great wedding, a great wedding with awesome people, a bride and a groom that love each other, and food that is to die for, literally, okay? Nobody, okay. <laughs> I think there's going to be barbecue there. That's just my thought. That's a side note. But anyways, you know, we love stuff like that. You know why? Because I think God wired us to love stuff like that. And, and th at the very end, that's what it's going to be like. That's what it's going to look like. And, and I hope you're there too. Don't miss that one. If you have an RSVP, yes, is that one. Go ahead and do so if you don't know, so I'm going to tell you to how at the end of this, this sermon. But the Bible uses terms that all of Christianity, collectively, that, that is the bride of Christ. And the bride wears white because she represents purity. And Jesus is the groom, and that's why we don't worship other gods, because that's being unfaithful. That's cheating. That's idolatry. It's also called adultery. We worship anyone or anything other than Jesus. See, when we're worshiping other gods, we are cheating on Jesus. And the church is the bride, and Jesus is the groom, and this marriage is to present and prepare. Marriage itself is to present and prepare people for something that's so much greater that's to come. And so the Bible says that, that marriage is actually a picture of the greatest reality that is to come in the future. 
That's why people that support unbiblical marriages, they also support universalism. Universalism teaches that all faiths and all ways, they eventually uh, get you to God, that all religions you can be saved. You see, if you're confused on how God saves you, then you'll be confused on, on this covenant of marriage that we're speaking about here. Or vice versa, if you're confused on the covenant of marriage, you'll be confused on salvation. This is exactly why the, the liberal churches, they want to ruin the covenant of marriage. They want to say it's something other than what God says. They also want to ruin the covenant of salvation. They want to play loose on marriage at the same time play loose on salvation. But here's the deal. We don't get to decide what either one of those things are. Only God does. And he says that a marriage is between one man and one woman that are committed to each other. And he also says salvation is found in no other name than Jesus. So the verse where God first says that marriage is between one man and one woman, the first time that we read this in our Bible, it's found early on in Genesis chapter 2, specifically verse 24. And it's such an important verse that Jesus repeats it in the New Testament. Some people claim that Jesus never spoke on same-sex marriage. Not true. He very much did. Probably the biggest theological issue that people that think this way miss is the very fact that Jesus was, was, and, was is, and always will be God. Jesus is God. And so when, Jesus, when God is speaking in the Old Testament, that's Jesus. And then Jesus repeats himself in the New Testament. This is what Jesus says, Mark chapter 10, verse 6. Jesus says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then later in the, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul repeats it again. So let me recap what, what just happened here. God says it. Jesus, who is God, repeats it. And then Paul says it again. You know why? Because it doesn't change. That's why. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what I say. It only matters what God says. And he says that marriage is between one man and one woman. And it doesn't matter if our Supreme Court, if they come together, and if all nine Supreme Court justices say something different than what God says, if they do, they're wrong. And they should change their mind. The seventh commandment tells us that, that God's design is that we remain faithful to each other through the covenant of marriage. Well, what happens if somebody fails to do this? What, what is the repercussions if someone fails to remain true to their, their spouse? Well, in the Old Testament, the penalty for adultery is death. Read in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. It says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. Let that one sink in for a moment. How do you think that might change the, the movies that Hollywood puts out if that one was still followed today? In the Old Testament, there was no chance for a repeat offender. You commit, you commit adultery, you die. End of discussion. And then there's some people that want to argue semantics. They want to say, well, if someone cheats on their spouse in the Old Testament, can they get a divorce? Well, if your spouse is dead, you don't really need to get a lawyer involved. You need to get a mortician involved and call it a day. In the Old Testament, the penalty is death. But in the New Testament, the penalty is divorce. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 9. 
And I say to you, whoever commits, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So just for you, who, who's speaking in that verse? That's Jesus. And Jesus says whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This, Jesus is very strict on marriage, but you know what? He's very strict on divorce too. And this is a huge verse when it comes to pastoral ministry. So this tells me I just can't marry anybody I want. I can't even marry any old Christian that just walks in the door. They, they have to they like, make sure that this commandment's not broken. So what's the exception clause for divorce? It's only for those that break the seventh commandment. Now, on the other side, there's some Christians that will say, you know what, God hates divorce, and so you should never, ever, ever get divorced. No matter what, no divorce. Not true. Marriage is something that no one should ever rush into, but marriage is something that no one should rush out of either. Adultery does not mean you have to get a divorce. Adultery means you have the possibility, but it's not a requirement. You you don't have to get a, a divorce, but according to Jesus, you have the possibility to get a divorce. But if you can forgive, if you, if you can work things out, then that's what you should absolutely do. But this is the exception clause. You know, I have done a lot of marriage counseling, and a lot of times it's been because adultery has occurred. And, and as hard as it is, I really encourage people to work it out. Husbands and wives, they need to work it out and forgive each other if they can. And I've helped wives when they were struggling because they had a husband that, that was unfaithful to them. And I've helped husbands that have a wife that was unfaithful to them. And, and both times I've seen it restored and put back together. You see, both situations can be, can be put back together if, if they want to. But there's times where there's so much hurt and hard feelings. There's just no putting that marriage back together again. But this is what I want you to know. Jesus can fix the most broken of marriages. He can fix anything. I mean, any marriage, regardless how broken it is, Jesus can fix it. Because really, every marriage, every biblical marriage, there's three parties involved. There's a husband and wife, and there's, there's God, and God always wants the marriage to be put back together. But if one of the two parties doesn't want it to be put back together, then it won't. So I don't, I don't, I don't encourage divorce because divorce is not the end. If you were married at one time and you had kids with that person and then you got a divorce for some reason, you could come up and give a, give a testimony. Divorce does not end it because there's kids involved. Only one time in, in my ministry have I ever said, yeah, you probably should get a divorce. And I, I remember it very, very vividly. There was a couple that had been married for like 50 years. 50, and I, I, they came in, talked to me, and I got the whole story, and, and she had nursed him through cancer like twice. And the second time he had cancer, it was prostate cancer. And there's issues arrived that when a guy has, had, suffers with that one. So what this guy did, he went to his doctor and got some pharmaceutical help with this issue so he could continue his relations with his prostitute girlfriend. And we met, the three of us, and he had absolutely no remorse whatsoever. None at all. And he didn't care about his wife. He didn't care about his kids. He didn't care about their multiple grandkids. So then rather than risk some life-altering STD, I looked at her and said, yeah, you might want to consider divorce. Divorce is the last resort only when there is no resort left on the table. 
And I've heard people say, you know what, pastor, a sin is a sin is a sin. People say, you know what, all sin is the same in the eyes of God. You know what, all sin is equally damnable, but not all sin is equally hurtful. Did you know there's sins that hurt you worse than other sins? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. The Word of God says, flee sexual immorality. It doesn't say fight. It doesn't say resist. It says, run. Get out of town. It says, for every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the, but the sexually immoral person sins against their own body. Let me sum up what the Apostle Paul is trying to say here. He's saying that all sin is hurtful, but sexual sin hurts you more than other sins. That there is a lasting effect when it comes to sexual sin that's going to continue long after the thrill of the sin is gone. And when it comes to adultery, especially when there's children involved, the sin continues to have effects long after the adultery is over. I came across a study. The study was done this year. And this study said that that 20% of married men and 13% of married women are unfaithful to their spouse. And I tell you, that sounds a little low, sadly. So I looked at some other sources, and there was a detective agency in Los Angeles, and their numbers were quite a bit higher. This organization said somewhere from 30 to 60% of married couples will cheat at least one time in their marriage. It said that 74% of married men and 68% of married women said that they would cheat if it was guaranteed they'd never be caught. 60% of affairs happen with close friends or co-workers. And the average affair lasts two years. And then 69% of marriages break up as a result of the affair being discovered. But consider this. Think about this. How does this affect the children? Here's a stupid lie that people will say. Well, it's just two consenting adults. And it doesn't hurt affect anyone else. Well, how does it affect the children? Let's, let's talk about that. Children of divorced parents are at least 50% more likely to, to get divorced than those that were raised in unbroken homes. When both the husband and wife that are coming together that are in a marriage, if they both came from broke, broken homes they are 200% more likely to get divorced themselves. You see, adultery affects marriages. And then adultery and divorce will affect the children and the children's children for generations to come. So the truth is, it doesn't matter what you want to do. It doesn't matter what your spouse wants you to do. It matters what God wants you to do. And the highest authority is not you. The highest authority is not your wife. The highest authority is God. And he wants us to remain faithful to each other. Now, if you're feeling guilty about this one, hold on to your hats because it's about to get worse. You know, in the Old Testament, the, the punishment is death. In the New Testament, the, the punishment is divorce. And some of us would say, well, it sounds like God took it down a notch. Well, hold on a second. Jesus is about to kick it up a notch. Read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. It says, you have heard it, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Where do you think Jesus heard that? He heard it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. He's he's quoting himself here in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Verse 28. But I say to you that everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus wants us to know that the sin of adultery, it begins in our heart. And the truth is we've all thought it. 
just for some of us, the consequences that kept us from doing it. But the sad thing, that didn't stop everybody. What we see in Matthew chapter 5 is that the adultery, it's really a heart issue. Because the sin, it begins in your heart and then it manifests, manifests itself in your actions from there. So how it works was first we think about it and then we plan how we can make it happen. Read in Romans chapter 8 verse 6. The word of God says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's so many people that wonder why they keep doing the same stupid things over and over and over. This verse tells us if you're setting your mind on the sinful things, you can't set your mind on God. So here's my question. Where's your mindset? Where's your mindset? We have to be attacking this issue with everything we've got, not dwelling on the sin, not thinking about the sin, but instead thinking about God and his grace and his love and what he would have us do. And there's no plan B. There's no backup plan should we not want to go this way. So I want to spend the rest of this sermon giving you a couple ways to defend against adultery. And this, I came up with six. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just my tips on how to defend against adultery. Here's number one. Don't cheat on God. Number one way, don't cheat on God. Because before anyone has ever cheated on their spouse, they had to first cheat on God. What's the number one commandment? Only one God. Number two commandment, no idols. So before you break the seventh commandment, you have to first break the first and second commandment. Okay? So a surefire way to never break number seven, just don't break number one or two. You know, if we were to go to Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says to offer our bodies as a a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable unto God. That's our spiritual act of worship. So our our act of worship to God is to submit our bodies to him. So many think, well, worship is what we do before the church service starts. That's the singing stuff. Yeah, that's worship, but that's not all of it. Worship's what we do with our bodies. You see, no one in the history of time has ever said, man, I was just walking with Jesus. It was him and me. Things were going great. And oops, I slipped into adultery. You're a liar. You're a bold-faced liar. You broke the ninth commandment, but we'll talk about that in two weeks. No one has ever committed adultery without first dumping God. Because they, they dump God and then they worship sex as an idol. That's how it works. So if you never break number one or number two, you'll never break number seven. Here, here's a, the next issue. Number, number, two, number two, don't practice cheating. You're thinking, Pastor John, who practiced cheating most, so many of our culture, that's exactly what they're doing. They're, they're practicing cheating. Now, as for years, I was a single adult pastor in a, in a mega church, so I had to talk about this issue a lot with single Christians. And I was told by a bunch of them. They would come to me and say, you know, Pastor John, what I'm doing now, I'm doing this now, but when I get married, I'll stop and be faithful to my wife. No, no, what I tell them, no, what you're doing is you're practicing cheating because right now you're sleeping around with multiple partners. And that doesn't prepare you to be faithful to your wife, that prepares you to cheat. This is why the Bible teaches not to have sex before marriage. 
Because if, if, you're, if you're faithful before marriage, then you'll be faithful after marriage. So how will you stay faithful when you're married? Just don't practice cheating before marriage. Practice celibacy before marriage. So just because someone was living that lifestyle, then they get married, that, that desire to do that doesn't just magically go away. We need to re- practice by being celibate now before we get married. Here's number three. Number three, don't let your eyes become corrupt. So often what we allow our eyes to see is what we desire to do, then it's only a hop, skip, and a jump until we're actually doing it ourselves. Read Job chapter 31 verse 1. Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze on a virgin? Job has just given great advice there. He's saying, don't look at it. Don't ever look at it. This is what I want you to know. Pornography kills relationships. Back to my, se- my second point. You know, the, some of those same single Christians that I pastored told me, hey, pastor, well, I go to those websites and I look at that now, but when I get married, then I'll stop going to those websites and I'll fulfill what I'm seeing in the, on the computer screen and my wife. My answer is, yeah, you will for three or four weeks. Three or four weeks, and then you're going to get used to looking at your spouse, and then you're going to go right back to those websites. Why? Because your eyes have been corrupted. If you never allow your eyes to see those things you know good and well that you shouldn't be looking at, then you're, it's going to help you not to desire that, which you see on a computer screen, to come true. This is how this works out. No porn. None. Zero. We have a zero tolerance for porn. None. That means no looking at anybody who's not your spouse. And so how that plays out practically, if you're driving down the road and you see a member of the opposite sex come jogging up the road that's wearing something that can kind of double as an eye patch, turn the car. Go a different direction. People are like, oh, you're being legalistic. No, I'm being practical. Don't look. Here's the fourth way. Number four, see people as family. See people as family because in order to commit adultery, you have to see a person as someone that's to be used rather than family that's to be loved. Read in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. The word of God says, love one another with brotherly affection. Also say, or sisterly affection. So you know what we're talking about here. You see, when you see somebody as family that's to be loved rather than to be someone that's to be used, it really helps to put a hedge between you and that person that you might feel otherwise towards. Now, we should have relationships with other people, but we need to have godly relationships with other people. Think of family relationships with other people. Here's the fifth way, point number five, have a plan. Have a plan. If you want to remain pure and faithful to your spouse, then you need to have a plan to remain pure and faithful to your spouse. Not planning is planning to fail. Because we live in a fallen world. This world is designed to to trip us up, to mess us up. You know, so how that plays out with me, if I meet with a female for counseling, whether she be a believer or unbeliever, then my office door is going to be open. So anybody can walk in at any time. And if we can't, maybe somebody's not here at the church, well, we're going to meet in a very public place so the whole town can see. And I think that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. See, this is where having a plan before you're in a situation goes a whole long way to make sure you never break the seventh commandment. 
It was a couple years ago that then Vice President Mike Pence, he caught a lot of flack because he wouldn't meet with a woman alone. And people were calling him all sorts of names. No, he's being smart. He's just being smart. He didn't say he wouldn't meet with a woman. He's just saying he wouldn't meet with a woman alone. One of my wife's best friends, I consider her one of my best friends. Her and I don't text back and forth. If I text her, my wife or her husband is copied in on the text. You can never be too overcautious with this one. There's just too much at stake. Now, again, there's some that saying I'm being listic. No, that's being smart. Intentionally putting yourself in a situation that could lead to breaking the seventh commandment, that's stupid. If you're never caught in a stupid situation, you're a whole lot less likely to do a stupid thing. And guess what? Adultery is stupid. Here's my sixth and last way. Number six, choose what you want the end of your life to look like now. You choose. So many people put all this time and effort and thought into so much of their life, but really they don't choose what they want the end of their life to look like. Maybe they plan their next vacation, or maybe they plan the, the, the coming weekend, but really it's nothing past that. No, but at the same time, those same people would put a ton of effort into their 401k, their Roth IRAs, their retirement plans, and that's a good thing. We should absolutely doing, doing that. There's nothing wrong with that. But so many people don't plan on what they want their retirements to, the retirement years to look like other than just to not work. Many, many years ago, I, I hadn't even met my wife yet. I was a single man. I remember I went out on a, on a date with this gal, and we went to re- some restaurant. And I remember it was like around holiday season, right about this time of year. We go to this restaurant. The restaurant's pl- packed, and we're at a table, and there's a bar over on the other side. And there's a man having dinner by himself, and I knew him. I knew him because he's an acquaintance of my, my dad, and I knew his story. And this man stood up, and he said, I'm buying everybody in here a drink. And I think I let him buy me a Diet Pepsi, something like that. But my date said, man, he must have a lot of money. He's able to buy everybody in here a drink. I said, yeah, he's got enough money in his wallet to buy everybody a drink. But did you notice he doesn't have enough character in his warehouse that would want his own family to eat a meal with him? See, I know his story. And I knew what he had done. And he lived such a life of partying and wild living that his own children wouldn't want to have a holiday meal with him. I have pastored so many good couples that are trying to work through this, this issue, this aftermath after someone commits adultery, and it's terrible. It is absolutely one of the worst parts of my job. But here's something so many people, they, they don't even think of when they choose to break the seventh commandment. That there's going to be this generational effect that, that comes that you're going to have to live with until the day you die. And it plays out like this. You're not going to get to see your grandkids as much as you otherwise would. Okay? That's what's going to happen. You're not going to get to see your grandkids. Talk to the grandparents. If there's grandparents in the room, they'll tell you they have to share their grandkids with other grandparents. Because here's what's going to happen for me and my wife, statistically speaking. Okay? Most likely, my kids are going to marry somebody. And statistically speaking, most likely, my kids will have kids of their own. And then I'm going to be a grandpa to those grandchildren. But when you're a grandparent, you have to split your grandparent time with other grandparents. Because that individual that your your child married, they have parents too, and now they're grandparents to your grandchildren. So you have to share. Now hopefully you get to grandparent with couples you like and be amazing. But what happens is when divorce happens, especially when it happens due to adultery, 
your grandparent time gets cut in half. You know, when you get a divorce, usually your assets get cut in half, and I think everybody knows that, but your future grandparent time gets cut in half too. Because your children's spouses, parents, their grandparents too, and they're going to get their time, but you have to split your time with your now ex-spouse. Here's the deal. This is just me speaking. I don't want 50% of 50%. I want 100% of my grandpa time. And so, it just seems so stupid to, to, to throw that away for some momentary thrill. But you have to decide what you want the end of your life to look like now. Here's the deal. You choose. You choose what it's going to look like. For that reason and about a thousand others, some silly affair is just not worth it. But now maybe you know what we're talking about here. Maybe you know exactly what we're talking about. If, if, if you've ever committed adultery, well then you need to confess that. You need to confess it to God and you need to confess it to your spouse that you have cheated on. You don't come and confess it to me. We don't play that here. That doesn't do much good. You need to confess it to God, but you know what the truth is? That's the easier of the two. You need to tell your spouse. And I can think of a number of times that I've had to work through this with a couple, and I'm thinking of two right now. In both these situations, it was the husband that was unfaithful to the wife, and both times they came to me and told me what they did, and both times I said, you need to go to your, to your wife. And you need to tell your wife what you did. And both times, both guys said, I can't. I can't, I can't, I can't. She's never going to forgive me. And both times I said, you have to. Because if you don't, this sin is going to continue to haunt you the rest of your life. You have to tell her. And I said, the truth is, she's going to take it better coming from you if she heard it from some other source. Either way, it's going to be horrible. And so one of the two husbands, he listened to me. And he went to his wife, and he told her what he had done, and it was awful. Absolutely terrible. Lots of tears, lots of heartache, lots of crying, but after lots of counsel, lots of prayer, that marriage is still going strong today. The other guy, he refused to listen. He, as far as I know, he never did tell his wife. And I watched him leave the church, and I know that that sin not only affected his relationship with him and his wife, but between him and God. You see, your sin might be a secret to everybody else in the world, but God knows. God knows. And that sin it becomes like a festering abscess that's never going to heal until you expose it to the light. You have to be honest with everybody. Do you remember John chapter 8? If you don't know, that's the story of the woman caught in adultery in the very act just a side note, any woman that's caught on the act, there's a guy that's caught in the act because it takes two to tango. I always wonder, where's the guy? Anyways, this lady, she's drugged to Jesus, and Jesus knows it's a trap, and the guys, the drugger, they said, the law says that she's to be condemned. What do you say? They're thinking of the passage we read earlier, Leviticus chapter 20. And if you know the story, Jesus stoops down and writes something in the sand, and Theologians have wondered what it was that Jesus wrote. I don't think it's as important as what he wrote as where he wrote it. He wrote it in the sand. Gust of wind and it's gone. And then he stood up and said, He's without sin, may cast the first stone. And the Bible tells us one by one, the men started to drop their stones from the oldest to the youngest. You see, these guys knew they were sinners. 
These guys were heavy on the law and light on grace. And then Jesus says, it's found in John chapter 8, verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. Great word there. I love that word. I mean, curious, it means the boss. It means the, 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 the CEO of the universe. That's what that word Lord means. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and sin no more. So we're talking about the seventh commandment here today. And here's this woman. She's guilty. And what happens? Jesus forgives her. Here's the truth. You and I, we're no different than she is. We're all guilty. We all stand condemned. We will spend two and a half months looking at the Ten Commandments. And if we're being honest, you and I, we're guilty of all ten. We are. What are we to do? Repent. Trust in Jesus. And be forgiven. And he'll give us a new heart. A new desire. To live for him and to sin no more. Not that that's easy. It's not, but it's living your life for King Jesus. It's the only life worth living. It all starts with the knowledge. You're a sinner. That you're a sinner. That, that God has said, this is what I require. And every single one of us has missed. We've all messed up. Some of us missed a lot. Some of us missed a whole heck of a lot. And there's nothing that we can do to make up for the sin of our past. What are you to do? Well, that's why Jesus came. So many think that, that we get to heaven by being a good person. Well, the question is then, why did Jesus die? You see, the penalty for so many of our crimes is death. That's why God became a man. And he went to the cross. And he died. He was sinless. Why did Jesus die? The truth is because you and I, we are the sinners. And if you call on him by faith, you will be saved. And he will give you grace. You don't deserve it. You can never earn it. But he fully freely gives it to you as a gift. How? The Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never called on King Jesus to save you, I would say, do that now. As you sit here in this chair, maybe you sit at home on your couch or you're watching on your, your device, call out to him. To say, God, I'm a sinner. Be merciful on me. Save me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.